is caught. It's history. A Cardinals four-game sweep of the Cubs and Wrigley for the first time since 1921. St. Louis back in the postseason. First time since 2015. A Wrigley Field massacre. And how sweet it is. And Bader launches one out to deep left. Into Big Mac Land and he hit the painting. He hit the painting for Fred Bird. You've got to be kidding me. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Conversations with Saruti. This is your host, Ben Saruti of Birds on the Black, and tonight I bring in fellow Birds on the Black contributor, Kyle Reese. Kyle, how are you tonight? I'm doing good, Ben. It's nice to talk with you. Yeah, you too. Uh, it's been a while since we've gotten to do anything on air. You and I did get to uh, talk the other day a little bit after your last pad, so that was always that's always good to do. I love talking with you. Uh, yeah, I feel the same way. I'm pretty sure everybody here probably knows where to find you, but go ahead and tell them before we get into our episode here. I'm not going to, don't follow me. Don't, you don't need to find me anywhere. <laughs> I, there, I offer nothing. Just find other people that you enjoy that are, I don't know, more entertaining than I am, but follow C70. How about that? C70, you can follow me at C70 and at Cardinals Gifts. That's where you can find me. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Kyle, as self-depreciating as always, um, let's go ahead and get started then. Um, so I, Kyle Reese is kind of the prospect guy for Birds on the Black. He is a very good at what he does, in my mind at least, so uh, that's why I asked him on. A couple of weeks ago, the St. Louis Cardinals traded for Nolan Arenado, and I actually had to write that out the correct pronunciation way so that I got it right because I've been saying it wrong all this time. And I know that you said that you uh, you had been having trouble with that, that as well. I I, I think yeah. that part of the reason we're having trouble with that is I've watched I don't know how many countless highlights of him, and you hear it forty eight different ways. Well, okay, you hear it two different ways: Arenado and Arenado in the highlights from the experts, even so. I don't feel yeah. too bad for getting it wrong, but, um, okay. So an earlier episode of the podcast, uh, covered the trade, uh, and Cardinals fans general excitement with it, with Corey Sanzone. And if you haven't listened to that one, Corey does a great job of catching our excitement. I think, uh, he, he absolutely loves the trade and I still talk with him probably every day about it. Um, this podcast isn't going to go into the details of our auto coming to St. Louis the contract, things like that, because we've already covered that. What I want to do with Kyle is dig into the prospects that went to Colorado for them to maximize their gain in the trade. Before we talk about that, really, though, uh, I know that Kyle's style is not to bash any prospects, um, even if he's trying to keep it real with about them. Keep it real with it about them. There we go. But Let's just get this out of the way early. These were all guys you would definitely have moved to get a guy like Nolan Arenado, right, Kyle? Yeah, I, I definitely. I know one thing that I said the other night talking to uh, Daniel and Alan on uh, Meet Me at Mutual is sometimes you have to do dramatic things in order to get dramatically better in baseball. And 
I mentioned that I probably would have been fine had they traded Gorman or Libertor in this deal, and it's definitely sweet that they didn't have to do it. But uh, yeah, I, I I only bring that up to say that to the Cardinals needed somebody like Nolan Arenado. They they, they needed it desperately. So with that in mind, in order to acquire top-end talent, you usually have to give away top-end prospects to get it. And had the Cardinals made that move, had they traded some of their top-end, I don't know how anybody could be upset with it uh, for that the type of player that Nolan Arenado is. But it is definitely sweet. Um, I'm sure the Cardinals feel like it's sweet. The fans seem to think it's sweet that they didn't have to give up uh, that top-end talent. Maybe just some... Uh, you know, some guys on the outside of the top five, potentially the top 10. It, it's an interesting trade, too, because it's all about timing. You know, two years ago, at the end of 2019, or you know, I guess it would be at the end of 2018, had this trade been made, we, you know, you get two, two more prime years of Nolan Arenado, but you would say, well, Mateo Gill wouldn't be here. So Mateo Gill, Tony Losey, and Jake Summers wouldn't be here. But you would say, wow, the Cardinals gave up a big-time prospect in Montero. And Austin Gomber, who looks like he's going to compete for a starting spot this year. Uh, one of their best young pitching prospects. So, you know, I like I like to think of it like that. I like to think about it where we were a couple of years ago. Think about where we are now. Um, but, yeah, I by and large, I have no trouble with the deal at all. Yeah, I think something you said there with, you know, just – looking at it in the frame of a couple of years ago, that just shows you the fickleness of prospects at times that, that we like to think that we know what's going to happen and, and we like to prognosticate and I like to do it with major leaguers, even, you know, with my projections and we, we don't know for sure what's going to happen with any of these guys. Um, so let's talk about Austin Gomber a little bit. You mentioned him. He is what you would look at on the Rockies side as the centerpiece of the deal coming back because he is a major leaguer. Um, he was set to be a potential member of the rotation this year. I feel like um, probably more of a swing man. Uh, this has to be the piece for the Cardinals that hurts losing the most in the long term. Um, you've long been a fan of Austin Gomber, Kyle. Can you tell us why? No, oh, I just. He's, well, I guess the first thing when you watch him and you watch a couple of his starts, and at the minor league level too, is he's a bulldog. You know, he uh, he pitches with emotion, and he's usually pitching at his best with emotion. Now, sometimes his emotions get the better of him, as they always do, but it never really happened infrequently. He was always effective, too. You know, he, he was always capable of limiting damage. Now, as he progressed up the minor league scale, the home runs became an issue. Uh, and, of course, that happened, too, when he came to the major league level. He was a left-handed option with with stuff that was better than the national stage was giving it credit for. And I think that's still what we're seeing now. But I just liked watching him pitch. He had a good pitch ability. Uh, even with, you know, primarily at the minor league level, only having the fastball curveball, which is problematic at the major league level, but can be really good at the minor league level. He just, he had enough of a slider and then not enough of a change, but enough of a change at a minor league level that you could you could see with continued development that manifesting in a very positive way at the major league level. So it was just like, you know, just the way he pitched, uh, the way that he commanded the mound. Uh, it, I, I just always liked both his stuff and his personality. 
in response to something you said there with his pitch ability at the minor league level, do you feel like he could potentially be a Marco Gonzalez type that leaves here, a Zach Gallen type that leaves here and really out pitches his stuff and kind of, kind of finds the edges of the strike zone, uh, things like that just for a couple of years, maybe uh, obviously with the Rockies, maybe not getting the Sterling ERAs that, that those two are yeah. getting, but that kind of guy. Well, the guy that I watched pitch last year in very, very limited innings had taken that next step in his development, right? He had a completely new slider um, that he was throwing from what appeared to me, and I don't have the data to back it up, but appeared to me to be a nearly identical release spot from both his curve and his fastball. You know, that was another thing that I always liked about him at the minor league level is that the curve and the fastball, which were his two primary pitches, they always seemed to come from the same angle uh, near the same release point. And the the engineering he did to get his slider near those two pitches, I think, uh, you know, he, sure, he's still going to get beat up a little bit. But I think that the combo of the three, even in Colorado, is is going to be a positive for him. Now, there's going to be issues that he's going to have to work through. You know, he he's, he's honoring. So I would imagine he's going to be the type of person who might still throw his curveball a lot, uh, even if his curveball is flat. I'd like to see him, when he's pitching in course, throw that slider maybe more than the curveball, but that's something he's going to have to work out. Um, I don't think he can be Marco Gonzalez. I don't think he can be Zach Gallen. Uh, and even making the trying to make the comp uh, as he moves to Colorado is is even more difficult. But I do think that he can be the Rockies' next iteration of Jorge De La Rosa or Tyler Anderson, who I called Tyler Johnson the other night, or maybe another version of Kyle Freeland. Like, I, um, I, I think that there is a small precedence for relative success at Coors. And I think that he's the type of pitcher that, has, that can have that success as shown by that type in the past, if that makes any sense. Yeah, totally does to me at least. Um, so I think our listeners will get that. Uh, where would he, where do you think he would have slotted in with the Cardinals this year? I, I know I said probably fifth, sixth, seventh type starter. Is that what you were thinking as well? Yeah, it's so tough to say, especially with all the uh, all the back end pitching depth they have, and then the surplus of left handed relievers. You know, we I've heard Mike Schilt on a sports on a Sunday morning months ago say that he thought that. Uh, People were overblowing the 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 taxing of innings of a regular major league season in 2021, following the shortened 2020, and that you know you wouldn't need to augment your pitching staff as much as maybe some some of us think you're going to. Uh, he pointed to Adam Wainwright, you know, missing an entire season and then throwing 155 innings or 160 innings or something like that, um, yeah. and you know, uh, but any, I, I bring that up because. It would be easy to say that in 2021, you could see Austin Gomber still having a 100-inning season if the Cardinals are going to be a little more cautious with their starting pitchers. But as, you know, taking Mike Schultz's cue, I could definitely see where they're trying to push all of these guys to 150 innings. Uh, you know, Carlos Martinez, in my mind, more than likely the fifth starter. And uh, trying to push all of these guys to 100 and, 150, 100 and somewhere between 130 and 160 innings, which would mean that like guys like Daniel Ponce de Leon and Austin Gomber, who 
you might be able to slot in for a hundred innings otherwise aren't going to be slotted in for that. So uh, I I definitely think that this would have, yeah, this would have been another one of those crunch years for him, especially with Tyler Webb and Andrew Miller and Henesis Cabrera, who is kind of in the same spot as I would imagine Austin Gomber would be in um, kind of slotted for bullpen spots. Gotcha. All right. What about where he fits with the Rockies this year then? Do you think he's a starter immediately for them? I or hope do you he know is. The, I, do you know the Rockies well enough to say? No. So I think if you're the Rockies, you're doing yourself a huge disservice to not get him in the starting lineup uh, as soon as possible. Uh, as, mm-hmm. as a start on the lineup, it, you know, to put him in, in your starting rotation as, certain, as fast as possible. You know, I know, I know they've got some guys, uh, uh, Senzatella, Freeland, Marquez, but, and, you know, of course, the ever John Gray, who everybody kind of, <laughs> you know, we all see the raw tools that he has uh, and, and get excited about. But for me, I would definitely put him in. Yeah, it's not worth making that trade if you're not going to give him a chance to start. He, he's not yeah, worth being a piece. Yeah. That, that's kind of what I think, too. I, I'm sure they've got six, eight guys, but... But if he's going to be the centerpiece of the trade, if that's the trade that you're going to accept as the Rockies, he's got to do it, doesn't he? I mean, yeah, you, you, yeah. you just granted they don't seem concerned about the PR nightmare that they've created. Um, they seem totally fine being poorly run. Uh, so maybe, maybe he doesn't get a clear shot to be a a, a starter in that rotation. But it, it's just another bag of hornets that you are are hitting with a bat uh if you don't even give him a chance if he doesn't have the leg up yeah i agree especially when your fifth guy right now is like a chichi gonzalez or something i yeah i think you gotta give him a try um all right uh i i want to keep talking about the pieces the cardinals had to give up this is going to be kind of a long intro for for uh Alaris Montero. Um, so third baseman Alaris Montero was a guy that you wanted to see more of in the Cardinal system. I know um, he's a guy who at 16 and 17 in the Dominican summer league hit around 250, 260 with minimal power. But then 2017, he came stateside uh, age of 18, put up like a 275, 370, 470, 840-ish line in about 200 plate appearances with Gulf Coast rookie ball team. He then in 20. 20- 18 at the age of 19 moved all the way up to a ball Peoria skipping low a entirely. And he hit so well there that he, he only lasted 425 plate appearances before he moved up to high a Palm beach for the final hundred six hundred and six plate appearances of the year. And in just over 500 plate appearances between those two stops, he hit over, he hit 315, kept his on base around 370 slugged over 500 had an 875 OPS he had 56 extra base hits and only 127 games. So you can see kind of when his power began to manifest. Um, 2019, he had that hamate injury. Um, and I thought I had read about another health issue that year, but I could be wrong. Uh, he was, only got half a, as many. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, real. I'm sorry, real fast. Uh, so he hurt his wrist and he like a month into the season, three weeks into the season, and it didn't get diagnosed as a broken hamate. So he rehabbed it, came back, I want to say three weeks or a month later, played a little bit, was still complaining about arm wrist issues, uh, hand issues, 
they did some more tests on it and they found that it was a broken hammock. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So it was the same injury just twice. Okay. Um, so yeah, so you had a, the same health issue a couple times that you're only gotten to like half as many games and just completely flopped as far as statistics go. Um, so why were you so bullish on him still beyond beyond the stats that I shared, especially coming off that big injury and off a lost season? I know you were still bullish on Montero. I hate giving up on a prospect that was as rawly, not even rawly, that that was that was already productive at the minor league level the way that he was productive at the minor league level. There were two things in 2018 that really stood out about Montero. Stats aside, the one was the patience and the hunting at the plate for his pitch. That's something that's rare, especially for teenage kids. The second thing uh, in 2018 at the Midwest League and for the Florida State League was that he had the ability to just adjust on the fly in game, depending on how he was being pitched. And that's how he would decide how to engineer his swing in a game. It was an advanced approach for someone so young and honestly, an advanced approach for a minor leaguer. So, you know, he, he's a big body and one of the, one of the kicks on him at the end of the 2018 season, as he, his stock continued to grow and rise and people were talking about him being a potential top 100 prospect was that people were worried he wouldn't be able to stick at third and that his body was kind of sloppy. And these are reasonable things to worry about with any teenager or recently turned 20 year old. And that offseason, Montero worked to become extremely muscular. And again, you know, I will also say he worked to become uh, an uh, above average at the minor league level third baseman. He has a, a, an astonishingly good arm over there. But something else happened in there where the player at Springfield, even in those first three weeks before the initial injury, and, and I remember this also happened in spring training last year, too. But uh, or in spring training at training 2020 and even, a, I think, a little bit in 2019, where it was like he was just trying to catch everyone's eye. So he was trying to hit for power. He was trying to, you know, with every swing, he was, with every pitch that he saw early in a count, he was swinging hard at it. And, you know, like I mentioned to Alan and Daniel the other night, I remember in spring of 2020, he was playing third, and on two occasions he fielded a ball, and instead of just going through the normal fielding mechanics, he, like, stopped himself, and he, like, powered up like you would in a video game and just tried to throw <laughs> it as hard as he could across the diamond. And, oh, that's you know, funny. Yeah, it, with, the, with hindsight, with the ability to look at things with hindsight, thinking about what I saw in 2019 as compared to what I saw in 2018 uh, and 2019, both in the Texas League and in the Arizona Fall League, it was like he became a guy who wanted everybody to see that he had made the adjustments or wanted to see, wanted everyone to see that he worked to fix the criticisms of him. And he wanted to try to show off to catch everybody's eye. Now, show off is a very delicate word there because I don't mean it in the connotation that you would normally mean show off. I think he wanted to catch everyone's eye. And I think that it cost him. And I, I'm, where I'm kind of at with Montero is I don't want to, I never wanted to punish him for having one bad season when I felt that the season was all about pressing and recovering from injury. And, and I still believe, and whether he goes to Colorado or a pitcher's haven, uh, I, I still believe that if he just finds comfort in his game, 
that quiet confidence that he showed in the Midwest League uh, and and the Pacific Clo- uh, the PCL, the Pacific Coast League, or uh, sorry, the, uh, the, uh, the the Florida State League. I'm sorry, the FSL uh, yep. in yeah, 2018. Yeah. Um, I I still think that that's a top of the line bat who's going to have the ability to have an OPS between 800 and 830, 840. You know, getting on base 37 percent of the time. I, I that, that's still in there, but it's up to him to recommit to having that mind frame uh, and trusting his skills and not trying to, to impress. Am I crazy to think that if, if he stays in Colorado and actually gets to play at the big league level there, we could see 280 with 40 plus doubles out there with him? Uh, you're not crazy to think it, but again, it's going to take a commitment to his old ways. It's going to take yeah. completely forgetting about everything in 2019 and the beginning of that 2020. 2018 approach. That's it. And I know that people will say, well, you know, and you'll see it and there's reason to say this. So I don't mean this as a criticism for people who would say it, but, you know, people will look at that and say, well, he's also going up against inferior talent, you know, et cetera, et cetera, at the lower levels. But the approach is unmistakable. And that approach is something that carries from level to level unless you give up on that approach. So, you know, you're talking about now missing an entire minor league season and then an entire 2019 season where you didn't have that approach and you didn't show it and then leading into spring of 2020. So it's not just like going back to that old approach. It is even for a 22-year-old even for a minor leaguer who's never made the majors, it is a reinvestment into that approach. And that's, of course, where the uh, the gamble comes in. Okay. Um, let's stick with that left side of the infield and go with the uh, – I've seen him referred to him as a third baseman, but I'm pretty sure you were, you, you, you're on the boat that Mateo Gill would have stuck as a shortstop. Um, I know far less about him. I know he's still a young kid. I know that you said he had the tools to stick it short. Um, he's one of the very few guys in the Cardinals organization, I think, who could have said that at the time, which makes it a small surprise to me that he would be headed off in this deal. Um, uh, I did listen to your conversation with Daniel and Alan the other night saying that he is kind of like that Paul DeYoung type body, that he's a little a little what you would consider slower for a shortstop. He's not that quick twitch fiber type, uh, Andrelton Simmons or, or Frankie Lindor or Tatis Jr. type of defender there. Um, uh, his feet need a little bit of work, uh, but he was still about a average or above at short at his level of the minors. Um, tell us a little bit more about him besides, besides what I remember from you saying with Daniel and yeah. Alan. The guys at Baseball America do a really great job of, of quantifying what it's like to be a national prospect writer as opposed to like a regional prospect writer or follower like myself. It's tough to stay on top of thousands of players as opposed to, you know, staying on top of th- thousands of the top players. And what ends up happening with a kid like Mateo Gill, a third rounder, is you know, most high school players that are drafted out of high school, especially two-way players like Gil was, he was, you know, he had kind of an electric uh, fastball and also, you know, wanted to play shortstop. 
So when the Cardinals draft him, they turn him into a shortstop. That's not uncommon. Uh, it's actually relatively common for high school players. And the way that Baseball America explains it is it's not easy to have scouting reports on all of the players, especially the high school players in their first full year at uh, at, uh, at an affiliated club. It's just not easy to stay on top of them unless they were already like a top 10 top 15 prospect in the team's organization or, you know, one of the top 200 draft picks, or it just, it's not always easy to, to stay up to date on that. So a lot of times what ends up happening, uh, especially when you're talking about high school players that only get to play at a short season affiliate, like Gil did, you, you just don't have as much to go on. People aren't talking about it as much, but what we saw in 2019 out of Mateo Gill uh, was as he was allowed to commit to shortstop for really the first time in his life. Some of those concerns about uh, his ability to stick it short started to evaporate. Yeah, I think I called him the light version of Paul DeYoung. Again, sometimes I just try to oversimplify things for Cardinal fans, not not to diminish their knowledge, but just because it's always easier to make correlations with names that you're more familiar with. Uh, so right, I, right. like. Kind of, yeah, exactly. Kind of like a, a poor man's Paul DeYoung. Maybe if you want to stay in the Cardinal world, maybe something like, you know, I, I know this is probably not a positive, but like Daniel Descalso or Greg Garcia at short, you know, something, something kind of like that as, as a 19 year old playing in the Appy League. So it seemed like when I was talking with people, they all said, no, this kid, he has the ability to play short. He has the ability to play short for quite some time. It's just a matter of if that bat will carry and if he keeps working hard. And he's one of these kids who will always keep working hard. That's just in his fabric. You know, uh, as far as his footwork and everything, it's probably better off that I don't comment on any of that because I I don't really know it. I haven't really seen it uh, firsthand. But he's more athletic than I think a lot of the national people, other than our good friends at Prospects Live, uh, than a lot of the national people are giving him credit for. He has a really solid arm. He's pretty rangy. One, like his speed is one thing that I've, I've heard some of the national guys maybe say that isn't there. And I've only heard that he has above average time uh, on the base paths. So I, I'm, I'm a little interested in that. But yeah, like he, he's one of these guys who will more than likely stick it short. What level of good it'll be, I don't know for sure. It's hard to say, especially after missing an entire minor league season in 2020. Uh, a very important developmental year for all high school age players. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. collegiate age players, but um, yeah, that's, I, I like him a lot in it in the Appy league, which is kind of a hitter friendly league. Sometimes he showed pop. He was starting to bring pop into his game. He was also striking out a little bit too much, uh, but th- there's, there was a lot to be intrigued there. And he, you know, from, from a guy who's just kind of like watching, it's also interesting. Like I'm glad he got traded now rather than a little ways down the line. Like this is, uh, unfortunately, even though the Cardinals don't have a lot of middle infield depth uh, at the minor league level, like this is the time when you when you probably have to trade him because one of two things are going to happen. He's either going to lose value or he's going to gain value, and then you'll the Cardinals would never trade him. So this is yeah. this is like the window, and you know it's kind of like in Mundo Sosa, right? Nineteen year old in Mundo Sosa tore apart the Appy League. Now Sosa was a surefire. People would talk about him being the best. A defensive shortstop in the Appy League, but then he put up like near MVP level numbers uh, as a 19 year old there or as an 18 year old there, and then he struggled on his way up. But because he was so good there, the, the Cardinals were never going to trade him at that value. So uh, 
this was like the right timing, unfortunately, for Mateo Gill to be a part of this deal. Okay, that makes sense. Um, Now, to my listeners, I I did listen to the Baseball America uh, podcast with Kyle Glazer and J.J. Cooper, I think it was, about um, the Nolan Arenado trade. So I might have got the footwork thing from them, Um, not Kyle. Apologize if I uh, put words in your mouth there. Um, Okay, so sticking with these two left-side infielders, Gil and Montero, that they gave up. Um, I looked up, just quickly looked up three prospect lists. Keith Law has two corner infielders ahead of Montero on their prospect list for the Rockies. They, they did put, Mon- or he did put Montero at number 10 in their system. Um, so he had updated his. Prospects Live had not updated uh, their list yet with Montero on it. He had the he had Montero at number eleven on the Cardinals lists, but he had corner infielders at three, four, seven, eleven, fourteen, and seventeen for Colorado, and another guy listed just as a shortstop at number ten in their system. Uh, Purple Row is kind of like the Viva Albertos for the Colorado Rockies on Sportsblog Nation. Uh, they have corner infielders listed at three, four, five, six, nine, and sixteen on the Rockies prospect list. Um, do you know anything about? Uh, so here's their names, and I don't know if you'll know anything about one of them, all of them, none of them. But uh, they have Aaron Shunk, Michael to- Toglia, I think is how you pronounce it. Colton yeah. Welker, I feel like his name's been around quite a while. Uh, mm-hmm. Ryan Valade. Grant Levine, Julio Carreras, and Adele Amador. Um, do you know anything about any of those guys? And where do you think Montero and Gill, as potential left side infielders, kind of fall among that group? Yeah, you know, I don't have a strong enough understanding of the Rocky system to be able to say one way or the other. I, I would just based solely on what I know about Gill and Montero, uh, and the little bit I know about each one of the guys you mentioned. I I do I would understand why Gill would be at the back end of that. Uh, the one thing that the Rockies have always seemed to do is produce infielders. It, it just seems like they always have a pipeline of promising infielders around. Uh, so I I trust their evaluation when it comes to infielders. Uh, what I'll say about Montero, again, it all comes down to the type of hitter he wants to be because if he decides to go back to that, he's a top end infielder um and again he's got to continue to work at third base again i could see him sticking at third um i I think that he has that potential as long as he keeps his body in shape but uh yeah yeah it's probably again i it's just not fair for me to be able to say where where he slots in unfortunately or where either of them slot in no worries um just figured i'd throw that out there in case you know you've kind of got that kind of memory i feel like where you'd be like oh i remember this one at bat in double a where it looked like this i don't know um all right again i i I like the problem with the rockies again i i find that when i do look into other systems I, i i do end up really liking the groups that those systems are known for producing and it's, it is incredible. You know, like I said, the Rockies, all of those guys, I've, I will not all of them, most of them I've seen in one capacity or the other. And I like them for those re- like, it's just amazing how some teams have just like with the Cardinals and pitching, uh, collegiate yeah. age pitching, or like 
some teams just have that knack for finding that guy because that's how their scouting system is engineered. And I have faith, as crazy as it sounds, that the Rockies picked their guys and like all of those guys have a real chance uh, at some type of future at the major leagues, potentially. Okay, personal curiosity living in Kansas City. What's the view of Kansas City's system? What do they build well, or what do they what do they do well with their system? It seems like to you. Uh, it's funny. I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking about how they they built their world championship. Now I can't say that there's uh, like from a St. Louis perspective. There, I don't know if there's like a view on what the Royals do or don't do well. I know if leading into the the World Series appearance and victory. Uh, to me, it was what the hell is Dayton Moore doing all the time? I can't figure this out. And then it was, uh, uh, you know, the manager whose name I can't think of. Who was the manager? Uh, it was uh, Ned Yost. Ned Yost. God, I'm so stupid. I remember thinking, boy, <laughs> Ned Yost is a Ned Yost is a terrible manager. Uh, but I, uh, you know, my what I will say is. The Royals system is absolutely one of my favorites now. I love what the Royals have done. And I'm not even talking about like Bobby Witt or what they've done with some of their their top-end draft picks. I love the way that they've built around college pitching. And again, you know, if you're talking about a team wanting to make noise quick, the way to do it is to draft high-end college pitching because those guys are going to get here quick and they're probably going to have you know, as long as they stay healthy, they're probably going to have the, the the smallest margin of error getting to the major leagues. Now, that doesn't mean they're all going to be top end pitchers at the major leagues, but it's easy to build a staff out of, you know, Brady, Brady Singer and, and Daniel Lynch and Chris Bubik. It's uh, it's, yeah, exactly. It's I'm t- the easiest way to get good in baseball is to draft collegiate age pitching with those first couple rounds worth of picks. And watch that sort itself out because, you know, sure, they might not all end up being Danny Duffy, but that doesn't mean they're not going to be Greg Holland. It doesn't mean they're not going to be, uh, you know, uh, Wade Davis. Yeah, Collegiate pitching is, to me, the goldmine of the draft. And, you know, for a team like the Cardinals or the position that the Royals are in now, sure, now's the time when you when you have this this depth of that to get a little bit more creative in the draft, uh, get a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, take it, roll the dice a little bit more. But I, I personally, I love what the Royals have done both internationally and in the draft. All of those arms are arms that I, I loved in college. And I like Brady Singer kind of fell to them. Uh, but I, I love what they've done. All right. So, since you're talking, I was kind of hoping that, that you would talk about their stash of college pitching because the next guy we're getting to in the Arenado trade is Tony Losi, who he was out of the University of Georgia. Uh, I'm glad I looked that up because I totally would have said UCLA yeah. and forgotten that that was Jack Ralston in that same draft. Oh. Um, but uh, Tony Losi, so... He absolutely dominated that senior season at, U- at UGA. Um, upon arriving in the Cardinal system, he didn't do quite as well, but he did seem to just strike out tons of players. Um, 
Now, I, I don't remember if he was a guy that you saw as a starter long-term or not. I know that on the Meet Me yeah. at Musical podcast the other night, you did say you think that he's more of like a Mitchell Boggs, which uh, granted Mitchell Boggs both started and relieved. So I don't know if you were hedging your bets there. Uh, but uh, why do you think maybe he struggled when he came to the Cardinals? Was it just a long season? Was it um, that he was pushing too much, like maybe a Montero seemed to be in 19 and 20? Was he trying to impress because he knows the Cardinals move college arms very quickly? Uh, and then also maybe tell us about his repertoire. Yeah, that's Tony Losey. Tony Losey is Mitchell Box. Uh, they're like from the same town. They're built the same. They went to the same college. They did the same thing at the college. Uh, he He's, I mean, everything about him screams Mitchell Boggs. And, you know, I think the Cardinals, and I guess, I guess to answer one of your other questions, not to get too far ahead of myself, it's always hard to evaluate any pitcher after a collegiate season as they enter an organization. It's just, it's, it's hard. Some guys like Logan Gregg, who I am really impressed with, will get the start because they didn't get as many innings. They'll get pushed up to a higher level where they'll be successful and then the off season, they kind of settle back into normal. Some of these guys are pitching tired. Some of them are pitching not tired. Some of them have lost feel for a pitch. You know, it's it's just it's a tough environment to really appraise someone's talent. That's usually why it's always fun to watch whoever the first round pick is or second round pick, whether that's you know Griffin Roberts or Zach Thompson or whatever. Uh, you know, get their nine to thirteen innings at three different levels and barely pitch out <laughs> of the bullpen. Like it, it's just it, it's fun to watch now. The thing about Losi is the strikeouts are awesome, but his command is terrible. I, he does have a chance to be a starter long term, but the, the chance is very, very small. To me, he's always been like uh, that's like for me. And you know, you and I have talked about Jack Ralston, who is the UCLA player that that you were going after. Like to me, Jack Ralston is the guy who has who I would have kept in the rotation, and uh, 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 Losi is the guy who I would immediately put in a bullpen. Their, their stuff just works better that way, in my opinion. You know, the issue with, with Losey is that he has what I believe is a slider. Uh, we're just going to call it a breaking pitch. It, it's, he's basically this fastball breaking pitch. Um, it, well, I, I'm, I'm not going to call it a breaking pitch. I'm going to call it a slider. Uh, he has He's fastball slider, but he, he bounces that slider a lot. And at the Peoria level, because of how hard and how how heavy that fastball is he can get away with that but even then like he wasn't getting as many swings and misses with it as when you go back and watch him at Georgia his breaking pitch still needs a lot of development he's never really shown the ability to throw a third pitch although sometimes he has it and it looks really good uh, a changeup and uh to me he he is somewhere between you know I think I think we forget because of the way it all ended with Mitchell Boggs, how good Mitchell Boggs was for a couple seasons. And yeah, we still don't know was. what we're going to get. Yeah, yeah. And we still don't know what we're going to get out of what the Cardinals are going to get out of Seth Elledge. But to me, like idealistic, he's probably somewhere between uh, Mitchell Boggs, who I can't believe I haven't called Wade Boggs yet. And um, <laughs> and Seth Elledge, like he's he's some. If he hits, if everything hits right for him, he's some combo of those two. I, I think he's more like Seth Elledge than Boggs, but it, there are just so many similarities with Mitchell Boggs that it, it it's hard to like 
it's hard to see it any other way. But like, I think Seth Elledge is probably, you know, what we saw out of Seth Elledge from the breaking pitch, the way the breaking pitch kind of moves, the way that his fastball kind of moves. Uh, Losi is a little bit more of a free thrower than Elledge. Like with Elledge, sometimes you watch him and you're like, oh, you can see the mechanics at play. With Losi, sometimes he's all over the place. And for being a big body, it's really striking to to see his mechanics kind of fail him frequently. So uh, all that's a ramble to say that I love that of all of the, pic- the pitchers from the 2019 draft, uh, Payante, Ralston, uh, maybe even Gragg, um, that he's the one that got moved. You'll have to remind me on a different episode, we'll have to get into Andre Payante because I know that you are really high on him and I know nothing about him. Um, That's just more mental note for us later. Um, Okay. So before we get to that last piece in the trade, Jake Summers, um, I've kind of been telling people that I feel, okay, well, first of all, we easily got the better of this deal, no matter what, basically. But um, if the Rockies end up feeling okay about this return package of prospects, that I think it could hinge on Gill and Losey's progress. Uh, I feel like Gomber is going to be good there. I'm a little worried that we could have let him another Marco Gonzalez go. And you, we talked about that already yeah. a little bit, um, where you, you don't think he'll be quite that, but but he could be quite good. Um, I already mentioned that I feel like Montero's hit tool will play up greatly in Colorado. Uh, you didn't call me crazy for seeing 280 with 40 doubles out of him. Um, but of course that's with him re- reaching much of his potential and making the majors, uh, which is incredibly hard to do, but the Gill and Losey progress here would take this from, for the, from Colorado's eyes, giving up your team's icon basically for two nice players to giving up your team's icon for two nice players and potentially two more guys that can do some really nice things for you. Um, so with Gill being that left side player, even if he is, a long-term utility man at the major league level. You know, even if he is a guy who can spell Trevor story and hopefully for them, uh, Alaris Montero at third, every once in a while. Um, and Tony Losi, a guy who becomes Mitchell Boggs for them or becomes Seth Elledge or somewhere in between out of their bullpen for six to eight years, you know, that, that now this trade, you look at it and you go, okay, that wasn't the worst thing in the world like we thought it might be. Um, am I crazy in thinking that it might hinge on those two guys? Uh, no, I don't think you're – no. You're, you're definitely not crazy. I, I would say that if you're a Rockies fan, it hinges on Gomber and Montero. But if, if we're talking about in 10 years reevaluating this trade – and trying to be as unbiased as we possibly can, then absolutely not. You're not crazy at all. But I just, you know, if you're a Rockies fan, unless Gill or Losey become top end talent, what you're looking at is you're constantly going to be looking at Montero and Gomber. Okay. Yeah. And that that's fair too. That's fair too. I, I probably jump in the gun a little bit on those two working out for him. Um, all right. So Jake Summers, I know I, I was going to, I had kind of a lead in and, and, and all that ready to go for him. But um, it sounds like from what you told Daniel and Alan, uh, he is very difficult to nail down Um, that me looking through the baseball cube might know as much about him as you do. And you've done a heck of a lot more research on him than I have. Um, 
Jake Summers was the fifth and final prospect that went to Colorado in the deal. He's a righty. He was drafted out of University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Uh, he was tried as a starter there in his junior year. He didn't pitch as well as he would have liked. They moved him back to a reliever his senior year, um, which he was a reliever as a freshman and a sophomore. Uh, he was much better. He struck out 37 and 30 innings as a senior, allowed just 28 hits, one homer. Came to rookie ball in Johnson City for the Cardinals, and they actually started him throwing over 50 innings as a first-year player for the Cardinals. Started 10 out of 12 games that he pitched, and somehow he was arguably better as a starter than he was in relief in college even. Um, did you get to see his starts at all there, or did you get to see any of his relief outings from University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee to make any comparisons at all? I did no, nothing from college. It was other than like a little clip here or there. It was hard to find anything from him in college. I had more truck, more, more truck. I had more luck finding stuff from him <laughs> on in, in high school than I did in college. Um, That's crazy. And, and then it's, yeah. And then even then, like when he gets to the Appy league, if it weren't, if it wouldn't have been for just a couple of people that I know who live in the area that I had, you know, send me some video, I would have seen nothing of him. I mean, almost literally nothing of uh, a, a legal age Jake Summers. So it's it was incredibly tough to to like even that like even now I can't even evaluate that that aspect of it. I was really hopeful for the 2020 season. He was one of those guys that I was really going to key in because I wanted to know more about him. Um, but yeah, like. Sometimes it just works out that way. I, I was told, and again, you're told stuff and you don't really know how true it is, but I was told that between his junior and senior year, he went to a pitch lab, started working on pitch design. And then when he was when he was uh, pitching out of the bullpen, he ended up like his velocity ticked up a couple miles an hour across the board and his stuff was more lively. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was why the Cardinals ended up saying, hey, we'll draft this guy in the 10th round. He's kind of a wild card, a senior sign. And we'll get stretch him out and see if the work that he did in the pitching lab, wherever that was, or whoever that was with, uh, ends up bearing fruits. That's a great gamble to take yeah. on a 10th round pick. So, uh, again, without seeing anything from 2020, uh, this could end up being a diamond in the rough type pick. It could be somebody that the Rockies keyed in on and were hoping to draft in the, the later rounds that the Cardinals scooped up and picked. I, I know that he was one of those late risers entering the draft in 2019 where he wasn't on anyone's radar. And then at the end of that season, there were multiple scouts that were at each and every one of the, the uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin's game, hoping to see him because he was starting to generate a little bit of buzz. Uh, and again, like that happens, that happens with 30th round picks that happens with 27th round picks. It happens with 13th round picks. N not only like, you know, the guys who get, supreme helium and find their way to the top end of the draft so it's not uncommon for this to happen with the 10th round pick but uh yeah a guy that unfortunately other than that you know the clips that i watch it looked like he threw a two-seamer and a cutter uh, a lively cutter um and that you know whatever the third offering was you know maybe the cutter is a slider and it's some type of change up as a third offering but even then like knowing his repertoire i i and even up until the trade, when he was traded, I was like, all right, I'm going to dive back in and try to find out. And then my life got super busy. Uh, but I like even then trying to dig, it, 
there was conflicting reports. You know, I heard that pitching out of the University of Milwaukee, Wisconsin bullpen, he was up to 96 to 98 sometimes with uh, a cutter slash slider that was almost, you know, 88 to 90 sometimes, which is why I think it's a cutter because of the velocity, but uh, yeah. 88, yeah, 88, 90 sometimes uh, with serious late bite that would just handcuff, you know, both lefties and righties. So uh, again, just without being able to see it, it, it's hard to make sense out of the information that you're processing. And just from that, I could see why the Rockies, you know, with the the thin air up there would, would maybe target a guy who had been to pitch labs and had, had designed pitches that were not curveballs that, that maybe play off each other pretty well. That could, that could end up being a good get for them. Um, all right, my next two questions. You get to kind of put on your whoever the Colorado's Rockies scouting department head is hat and your Randy Flores hat. So um, the Nolan Arenado trade is not one of those that took place in like 30 minutes or whatever. It was kind of days upon days of finding out who went west and who who came, or Noel, we knew who came east. Um, but... Uh, there were four guys that I saw mentioned as possibilities from multiple national writers um, that did not end up going to the Rockies. But I was wondering, what do these guys have to offer that was potentially so intriguing to the Rockies that the Cardinals fans will still get to see, hopefully, in the next few years? Um, the four people I saw were Luke and Baker, uh, Angel Rondon, Jake Woodford, which Cardinals fans got to see a little bit of last year. And then, is it Jan Torres? Is that right? Yeah, I, I I've heard it. I've heard Yahan Torres, uh, with the and I've also heard like a, an iteration where the J is silent, but I don't I don't I call him I call him Yahan Torres. Okay, and for those of you that aren't seeing this in front of me, it's J H O N Torres. So it looks like John with the two middle letters flipped. So that that's why I'm asking. So we'll go with Yahan Torres as far as this podcast is concerned. And when I find out later, you guys can laugh at me. Um, so Luke and Baker, uh, big boy, big first baseman out of TCU. I know that his years at TCU, just from listening to Kyle on prospect after dark and other outlets, uh, Baker's three seasons at TCU all kind of got ended early with injuries. Um, and then we had 2020 hit as well. And so he hasn't had a full year of baseball in a while. What is so intriguing about keeping Luke and Baker? Yeah, the tough thing with Baker, too, when he was in college is there were freak accidents. Like, uh, I, I want to say he, oh, man, see, this is why missing an entire minor league season is tough on me. He he broke his leg or his ankle or something sliding into a base, and he, like, separated his shoulder or broke his elbow at a collision at first or something like that. And then uh, he was a pitcher slash first baseman his freshman year. And he just had general arm fatigue, which shut him down as a, a pitcher, uh, a relief pitcher. Uh, so he's had, he's dealt with injuries all three years. And then his first full year in the Cardinals organization is at, uh, you know, in 2019. And, you know, he, he has a great start to the year and a great finish with a lot of trouble in between. Uh, of course, the, the Florida State League is also a pitcher's league. What Luke and Baker brings is probably not a very good defensive first base Glove, although he did get better, uh, he went from being extremely below average to just probably being below average as a defensive first baseman, um, probably being worse than Jose Martinez to being on par with Jose Martinez. Um, 
And, and then what what makes Baker kind of interesting uh, as a hitter and is is his selective approach at the plate. You know, um, what he does that's really interesting is, you know, you see his body. And when you see him, he's listed at like 6'4", 240 pounds or 50 pounds. And when you see him, you, you would take the over on both of those numbers. I, I, I'll never forget the first time I saw him. And I thought, oh, wow, that guy's nine feet tall. And he weighs 450 pounds. Like, <laughs> he, he looks... He looks twice his size. He is just a big boy, but he doesn't have the prototypical profile that goes with somebody of that size, especially a first baseman. His his approach is built more on contact, uh, finding a hole, and also working a count. Uh, not necessarily with power, but as you would suspect for somebody of his size, when he gets behind a ball, he puts the ball a long, long way. So... I guess what we're hoping to see in the next step of his development is really tapping into that raw power without losing uh, what, I mean, it does have the chance to be between a 10 and 15% walk rate to go with a 12 to 16% strikeout rate. Uh, It's just a matter of how it all comes together and how quickly the DH finds its way to the major leagues, because even with the strides that he's made, to become a better first baseman. He is still, and again, he could still continue to work and continue to work and continue to work. He might end up being average at some point. Uh, But, you know, and it's tough to say again, losing the 2020 season, but uh, more than likely this is a DH who might hit kind of lightly from a power standpoint, but does some pretty intriguing things uh, from both a batted ball profile and a approach profile. Do you think he could maybe take a next step sort of like Alaris Montero did where you talked about with Alaris Montero having such an advanced batted ball, well, advanced eye sort of approach for his game back when he was hitting well that I know just from the clips that I've seen of Montero, I saw times where he was ahead in the count where he would wait on a certain pitch and go all out trying to pull that sucker. And I feel like that's potentially when his power manifested. Do you think that with Baker's approach, he could end up doing something like that? Like, you know, let's say, is he a righty? Yeah. Is that right? Um, You know, if, if he ended up getting traded to Houston or something with a short porch and left or, you know, Boston where he could bang it off the, Fenway, you know, the, the monster, um, is he a guy that, that could take that approach and just say, Hey, I know the strike zone. I'm waiting for this pitch and, and could actually hit more homers than, than he's currently projected to be that kind of guy. Or what do you think? And I can see it. That's one of the kind of randomly. No, no, I love it. I, uh, of course that's one of the bummers of him not getting the Texas league treatment in 2020. I think we would have seen an increase in power. You know, I don't know what it would have done to the rest of his numbers, but I definitely think going through the Texas league would have, would have increased those power numbers, you know, just a little bit, you know, uh, uh, real fast before we get into this, there is a great video of him uh, at TCU hitting a ball over the train tracks. As you talk about minute made hitting a ball over the train tracks at minute made. That was one of the first videos I saw of him the year before we drafted him. Um, but anyways, like I, I think when you're talking about Luke and Baker, you know, in, 
in 500 plate appearances hitting 10 home runs or whatever, I think, I think what you'll see is something between like 15 and 20, which definitely plays better from a, a DH depending on what type of power you're getting or what your first baseman production looks like, which shouldn't be an issue if Paul Goldschmidt is your first baseman. Uh, where he's really interesting too is for being a big boy who doesn't run well, he also hits a ton of doubles. So I think there's reason to believe that some of those doubles could turn into home runs, but he's he's still productive in the way that he slugs. So it, it's a delicate balance. You know, how much power do you want to sell out for when you're still hitting a ton of doubles? And can you just introduce power, turn some of that fly ball, those fly ball outs into over the fence power without compromising, you know, your swing and compromising some of those doubles. So is it in there? Yeah, I think, I think it has the potential to be in there. The likelihood, uh, again, if we were entering 2020, I would say, I think the likelihood is maybe 40% that he he does it at an acceptable level. But now when you're talking about missing an entire season, I I can't even begin to, uh, to think. Yeah. Okay. Well, while all of you listeners run off to find uh, the video of Baker hitting one where Albert Pools hit one back in uh, 2000, what year was that? Five. Um, make sure you come back to listen to Kyle finish up talking about more prospects. Um, so just pause it, come back in about five minutes after you find that video. Uh, Angel or Angel Rondon. Angel Rondon was one of the names I saw rumored to go there. And I know that um, he was one of your personal favorites uh, coming into last yeah. year, you were really hoping to see a big year out of him. And, and I know he's another guy that you were bummed to have lost out that year on. Tell us why you're so high on Rondon. Rondon's one of those guys who he like, from what I understand, he doesn't necessarily spin the ball as great as the greats do. Uh, like when you talk about his, his four seam, his change up, and then the varying levels of breaking pitch he throws, because I swear, I know he calls it a curveball. I know that the organization calls it a curveball, but when I watch it, he he molds that thing and 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 changes how he throws it, and it it has different motion and different movements. I mean, within the games, sometimes like within an at bat, it can be tight, uh, it can be loopy, uh, it can have more of a curveball motion, it can more of a traditional slider motion. Uh, he he's he throws it at varying uh, uh, velocities. And he does that with his fastball too. He's like, he's that old school pitcher. Now that might not that, necessarily just have hearing that, that, rem- that reminds me a lot of like a Zach Grinky type. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Whatever the, the, so like Zach Davies, maybe, maybe, maybe as we stick with people named Zach, uh, well, maybe <laughs> something like Zach Davies a little bit more just to hedge my bets. Like, I don't think he's going to strike out a ton of people. I don't think that's his game. I also think because of the lack of spin on his on his on all of his pitches, and when I say lack, I I mean it's just like it's just average from what I understand. Uh, it's not like none of it's above average, but the spin on his pitches, he's probably going to get beat up here and there, but he's going to make a career if he can stay healthy out of just being reliable. You know, whether that be a high end, or maybe that, you know on his high end, maybe that's Kyle Loesch, something like that. Uh, but like again, something like Zach Davies, he's just He's one of these guys that you watch and he he gets himself out of jams. And he's one of these rare minor leaguers that kind of pitches into the sixth or seventh inning on a regular basis. And he never really seems taxed. He never really seems emotional. 
he he'll let up a big like a monster home run where he leaves a fastball right over the middle of the plate and then he'll strike out the next three guys uh, of course <laughs> he i mean he i will say and i'm not trying to like sugarcoat it he lets up some monster home runs which is a concern it's just that he doesn't let up a lot of of hard contact other than those monster home runs so it's it's a weird thing to kind of judge but I just like him because I know that there's a major league future there. And I know that he's going to be one of those guys that I think flummox a lot of people who evaluate major league pitchers when he eventually makes his major league debut. But what I like is that he just, he just kind of pitches and he pitches in a way that we haven't really seen. And, you know, when he was 20 years old pitching in for Peoria to watch a kid, you know, dial it up to 94 and then maybe live 91 for a while. And then, dial it up to 93 and kind of flirt with that. And then, you know, one pitch out of every start would be 96, but then live between 90 and 94, but just constantly fluctuate his, his velocity and then do the same thing with the breaking pitch and the, the changeup, but specifically the breaking pitch that takes various different shapes. Uh, and he throws in all counts. Uh, sometimes a lot of times he'll, he'll like all of his, he'll start it an entire start will be him just starting every count out, not every count, but the majority of counts out with breaking pitches. And you just never know what that, that pitch is going to look like. So uh, I, I know that he's toyed with a traditional slider. I know he's toyed with a cutter. I know that he calls it a curveball, but it's just like, it's one of those things where it, it's hard to quantify what's so exciting about him because truth be told, he's, if you're looking at the stats and the measurables, he's kind of boring, but it's watching him pitch that's fun. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like it. And it sounds like you're you're of the belief that this change of speed and change of shape of all of his pitches is quite intentional. And and that would make it a super fun guy to watch. That that's that's a guy who yeah. I don't want to put too much on him because he's a teenager or early twenties kid, but I feel like that's the kind of kid who, and it seems like he loves pitching too, that he's going to be that, that, you know, that 35 year old at some point, just 40 year old throwing in a men's league somewhere just because he wants to play baseball and mess with people's heads. And and while he's throwing on a mound or something that, I don't know. That's cool. I like it. All right. Um, Okay. If you, again, back to, if you're the Colorado Rockies, why are you looking, why you may be looking at Jake Woodford? I know he is kind of that same place in his career as Austin Gomber, but maybe not quite the same talent level. Um, so what what do you have for us there? You know, my guess would be that he's been on their radar since the Cardinals drafted him. You know, that might be part of it. Uh, Jake Woodford and Dakota Hudson are the two guys that if I'm the Rockies, I'm staying away from. I, You know, I know that uh, I'm supposed to tell Cardinal fans here why they should be excited and I'll tell you that you should be excited for Jake Woodford because he is boring, like super boring. Like he, you know, he's not exciting. Um, Sometimes his curveball is really good and actually devastating. It doesn't happen all the time. Uh, He's going to be a really fun swing man. Uh, You know, Alan had asked the other night, like, is he your de facto sixth and seventh, you know, are he and Oviedo the de facto sixth and seventh starters at Memphis? And I think that there's a compelling argument to be made there, and that's probably his role moving forward. You know, depending on, you know, he, he doesn't throw with a ton of velocity, although his velocity has ticked up over the last couple of years. He he doesn't really command his stuff particularly well, or at least 
maybe the better way of putting it and what I the way I've always put it is that he pitches kind of like scared sometimes. And he, he's like pitching on the black almost exclusively. But then when he goes after hitters, like you can tell, you can just tell by his approach that like sometimes he's going after hitters. And when he's going after hitters, he's a major league pitcher. But when he's not, he's, he's you know, pitcher number seven on a depth chart. So, I, I, you know, when you're talking, the other thing about Jake Woodford to keep in mind, as I will certainly call him uh, a Jake Westbrook, so keep that in mind. Uh, the thing about Jake <laughs> Woodford is that he, you know, it wasn't until two years ago that he had even settled on a repertoire. He had toyed with pitches and toyed with pitches and dropped pitches and picked up pitches and just tried to find a repertoire that worked for him that he felt comfortable with. So I'm not surprised that he, you know, he's never been much of an attack pitcher, but when he does attack, he is really, really good. Um, and yeah, other than that, like I could go down the rabbit hole with a lot of these prospects, but I'm not going to do it with Jake Woodford because he's just kind of Jake Woodford. Okay. So when, when Jake Woodford's at his best, he's being aggressive. What, what pitches, what pitches is he using to be that third, fourth, fifth starter type instead of the seventh, eighth, ninth starter type? Yeah. He's mostly, is that when his, is that when his curveball totally on? Yeah. Yeah. It's, when he's commanding his fastball, when he—I mean, when he when he's commanding his fastball and using the curve as a weapon, you know, not just as a throw-off pitch, which he does a lot, you know, and he can get away with it sometimes. But yeah, it's when it's when he is aggressively deploying specifically those two pitches, and you know, at this point, like I don't even know what his repertoire is because there were times when he was still in 2019, and again, I I didn't look at the data from his time at the major league levels last year, but. There was time in 2019 where he was supposed to only be a curveball change or no, a curveball two seam cutter, I think. But if when you watch starts, you can tell he was throwing a four seam and you could tell that he was still trying to throw a change up. And like he was he was toying with multiple pitches. So, you know, that's another reason why it's hard to attack if you're constantly toying with pitches. You know, you're you want to have success with those pitches and get a feel for those pitches. And the last thing you want to do is leave one of those pitches over the middle of the plate. Uh, but yeah, just, just on thinking about what I watched last year, it's commanding that fastball and not on the black, but you know, in the actual strike zone um, and using that, that curveball off of it. Gotcha. All right. And then the last one that we were hearing that the Rockies had interest in was Jan Torres. Um, very toolsy outfielder that we acquired in the Oscar Mercado deal from Cleveland. Um, power seems to be his calling card, I believe. Uh, tell us a little bit about him. Super athletic. The athleticism is on the table. Now, he's he also has a really good arm for a right field. I mean, a, a pretty standard arm for a good right fielder, I guess is probably the better way of putting it. But he has a ton of athleticism, and he's pretty fleet foot. Uh, he, it's tough with him because in 2019... He starts a year in Peoria, only gets a couple weeks there, was off to a terrible start and was starting to figure it out before they shut him down and then sent him to the Appy League. And then when he was in the Appy League, the power comes, he starts dominating a little bit, and then he hurts his hamstring running out a ball to first base. So, like, the last couple weeks, he, he sat out, like, 10 games in 2019. And then when he came back, he, from what I understand, he was still dealing with, like, a sore hamstring. But he's an all-out effort guy. And he's 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 kind of a quick learner and a quick adjuster. And again, another one of those guys that was really hurt by not having a 2020 season. But 
that's a pretty solid uh, average defensive right fielder with a very good arm who is going to hit for power, but also has an okay approach for the lower level. He has a good approach for the lower levels of the minor leagues, but we just don't know the adjustments that he made at the end of his time in Peoria before getting sent down uh, and how that that would have applied. So uh, the, the reason to get excited about him is he's just another potential high end, high ceiling prospect in the Cardinals organization that can play the outfield. All right. Um, okay. So now pretend you're Randy Flores. So now you're Cardinal scouting director. You've got that hat on. Um, assuming Austin Gomber had to be a part of either package of prospects headed to the Rockies, would you feel better about losing the group that we lost to the Rockies, Montero, Gill, Summers, and Losey? Or do you think that you uh, would have felt better losing Baker, Rondon, Woodford, and Torres? Uh, I probably or feel better about the package. frame that frame that however you will. Sorry, go ahead. No, I get you. I I probably just thinking about it. I probably feel a little better about losing the package that I actually gave up, but I would definitely like to have m- m- like mishmashed them together. Like I would have liked to have been able to mix and match those two to make an ideal one. <laughs> um, gotcha. Yeah. 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 I. I I think I think if there was some way the Cardinals could have gotten like given up Jake Woodford in the deal and just been able to keep like Mateo Gill, which isn't would never would have happened. I would have been right. like exceedingly happy. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I'll, I'll be sad to see Montero go. I'm sad to see Gomber go. And uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, I think by and large, you just got your third baseman of the future in the, you know in the deal. Uh, I yeah that that it probably makes more sense for the Cardinals even though they gave up the uh, the the middle infield depth to lose what they lost. Okay. All right. I do. Well, I do. Completely... I am happy. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no I was going to say I am happy for sure that Torres is still in the organization. Although the Cardinals have a lot of tools, the outfielders of the early twenties, teenage variety, um, and. Uh, I just like Luke and Baker as a, I just, I, you have to root for the big unathletic guy uh, who just, you just have to root for him. He, I mean, I say big and unathletic. He is super athletic. He's way more athletic than any of us are, but you know, as compared to your average major leaguer, average minor leaguer, it's just not there. So, and and, (laughs) you know, all of, all of those guys, Woodford and Baker and Torres, like, uh, and whoever the the other one was, who I don't even Rondon. remember, uh, yeah. Rondon. <laughs> yeah, Rondon. Like, they're all fun. So I'm I'm glad they kept them all, except for Woodford, okay. who's boring. <laughs> uh, that's funny. All right. Um, so I want to kind of end our talk about the Rockies trade, but I still wanted to ask you a little bit more. Um, I did ask some people on Twitter, or I did ask Twitter to oh. come up with some questions for us, but. I wanted to go with one first. I want to go in the way back machine here and think about when Jack Flaherty was still a prospect. So we're looking 2016, 2017, maybe before that when he's coming up through the minors. Because I've been in multiple conversations in the past week about Jack Flaherty as a pitcher. Um, A few different people have claimed that his stuff just isn't all that great. Or maybe like they're worried that he can't be an ace because he doesn't have a dominant 
pitch. Um, I'd argue that at the major league level, his slider and maybe even his four seamer have been pretty dominant. Um, Was his stuff, quote unquote stuff, not that great in the minors or did he not have a dominant pitch coming up in the minors? Uh, What was his calling card as a prospect? It was, it was command. It was uh, again, like, he never showed like the command that he had before he blew up. And I, you know, he had the fastball, he had the slider. He just, and you know, the one thing that he does really well is everything comes from the same, same angle, the same slot. I mean, he wasn't always as consistent with that either. You know, his delivery was kind of sloppy. He wasn't always lined up and he didn't, he didn't like command things. It wasn't until he started throwing with a little tenacity and also with command that all of his stuff started to tick up and get better. But I'm with you. I think the slider and fastball, those are pretty dominant pitches. Okay. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I, that, that, that's, yeah, that's kind of what I went with. Uh, I, I talked about in those conversations that not only are the fastball and slider pretty dominant, but I feel like it's his command and not necessarily his, he doesn't have like an elite walk rate or anything. I don't think it's that kind of command, but I think it's more what you talked about is consistency and, and uh, I don't know if it's deception or tunneling to go along with it or what, but yeah, it just, it seems to be very, very just the same type of thing from him all the time. Um, He also, you know, he's another one of those guys who got himself in better shape. You know, he was never in bad shape, but he got himself in a little bit better shape and like, committed to the mental side of it a little bit more than an 18 year old or a 19 year old would any 18 or 19 year old and became a professional. Okay. Um, Okay. So we've got two different questions that go together really well from Twitter. Uh, So Bronson Hayes and Randy Rhodes uh, both ask about, uh, well, Bronson asks, what prospects do you have on your radar for major league debuts this year? Um, and then Randy's is more specific. Uh, Zach Thompson, will we see him this year? So I'm assuming yeah. Zach, Zach Thompson is on your radar for this year. Go ahead and tell us who else. I uh, the, the problem with guys like Zach Thompson and Matthew Libertor is there are a lot of pitchers that are still in this organization that are technically ahead of them on the depth chart. And it would almost mean that a lot of those, like a lot went wrong with some of those guys ahead of them. Um, but then again, you know, maybe they'll push the issue, but yeah, I think, I think it's realistic to expect, not expect, it's realistic to think that there's a very good chance that both Libertor and Zach Thompson make it a debut in 2021. I, if I was asked to bet on it, I would bet that we see both of them. Um, you know, besides that, uh, you know, Angel Rondon, I, I would assume we see Angel Rondon at some point, um, you know, other than that, like, I, I think it's probably, you know, it's probably a lot of the same. I, you know, I guess we could ask about Gorman a lot. I don't think, I don't think we see Nolan Gorman. And I think that that's probably a bad sign too, for what's going on at the major league level with Tommy Edmond and Matt Carpenter. Uh, but I guess maybe the outfield could get really crappy and Edmond could find his way to the outfield. And um, maybe Gorman's made a lot of, so you know, I don't see Gorman, but that could be it. I think, uh, uh, you know, some of some of the the non roster um, pitchers could be interesting. Like, 
say somebody gets hurt, could Evan Krachinski or could Tommy Parsons or could Austin Warner, um, you know, maybe one of those guys. I I still think that you're going to see maybe, you know, the pitching is where you're going. You're more likely to see a debut than anywhere else because, uh, you know, I just don't think there are a lot of, you know, I don't see Lars Newbar or Justin Turner or Connor Capel. I don't see them being one of those guys. You know, if you're looking for somebody maybe a little bit more off the beaten path, I've been pretty bullish for many, many years on Evan Mendoza. I would love to see Evan Mendoza, who has worked, you know, tirelessly. Uh, That's one of the things that Evan Mendoza did with his time away from baseball in 2020 was work to become a shortstop. And not only just from the highlights that I've seen on Twitter, but with talking with people is he's become what, what I was told. I think the term that I was told was Caribbean series impressive at shortstop. So I don't, I don't know exactly what that means, but I like to never, to only play shortstop like a little bit and not look particularly good to being whatever the hell that means. I think that that's a positive (laughs) development. And if his bat seems a little heavier than what Edmundo Sosa's is, and he's playing third and short and second and doing it really well, uh, he could be a guy who breaks camp as a utility infielder for the Cardinals. And I I would love that. It, you know, honestly, I'd love to see him get a ton of reps at second. I, I've always liked Evan Mendoza. And uh, for whatever reason, I, 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 he could be like the one that makes an unexpected Major League debut uh, aside from all of the names that we're constantly throwing around or asking about. And, you know, the other thing is so many names made debuts last year that maybe did it ahead of time that I don't think we're going to have as many debuts uh, this coming season. Yeah, it'd be hard to have many more debuts than we had last year just in that first week back from COVID. Um so Angel Rondon, you mentioned, uh, he is on the 40-man, so I could definitely see that despite um, you know, where you think he might land in terms of the hierarchy of, of you know, where people think he should be on the depth chart or anything. He is on the 40-man, so he does have that edge, uh, even over a guy like Zach Thompson or Matthew Libertor. Um, now those two have the pedigree and they have the uh, verbiage coming from John Moselak's mouth. Um, and so they, they definitely have the backing of the organization behind them. But, but Angel Rendon, because of the Rule 5 draft this year, is on the 40-man. Um, I could see with them moving Montero, who was on the 40-man, I could see how that could make a way for, for Evan Mendoza. Um, I, I think maybe that, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, I'm just trying to put myself in the mind of John Mosaic here. Mendoza's a guy they probably want to keep around. And... They did sign Jose Rondon and they did sign Max Maroff. Um, I could see those two coming up if Sosa doesn't work out or Carpenter or Edmund or whoever else on the middle infield doesn't work out. I could see them coming up prior to Mendoza just because they're more expendable, I guess. If they don't work out, they can be cut. Um, But those wouldn't be debuts either, would they? No, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure both of those guys have made major league debuts. Yeah, okay. And if they All haven't, right, so you, go ahead. I, I, I just, they're both guys that I feel their names. I feel like I've heard for hundreds of years and I, I, I have to believe, and I don't know for sure, but I have to believe that they both made major league debuts. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty certain they have. Um, okay. So we had a couple questions about Gorman. Um, 
One was from Cool Hand Luke twenty nine. Uh, this is absolutely jumping the gun a bit, but would the would the Arenado trade affect your plan for Gorman? I know you've mentioned um, that he's far enough off. You think that you wouldn't quite change the plan just yet. If you did, you would want to see him at shortstop in Double A just to see how he works in the middle infield. Might as well move him up the spectrum as opposed to second base. And then. Um, is his offensive talent enough to warrant a transfer to another position in order to give him the potential slide into a big league lineup in the next three plus years? And then Zach Gifford of Birds on the Black, who you guys heard last week mm-hmm. on Conversations with Saruti, um, he mentioned uh, just what does Gorman have to stick at second? What does his triple slash need to be if he doesn't become a significantly better defender than where he's at today and what's his ceiling on defense at second. Those questions kind of went together. So tell us kind of what you know about Gorman defensively and what you think he might have to do on offense to offset where he might be defensively as a major leaguer. Starting with defense. One of the things that I like to talk about with Nolan Gorman is when he was drafted, part of the reason he fell to the Cardinals is everyone thought he was going to have to move to first. Uh, There were a lot of people who thought if he stayed at third, it would only be for a very, 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 very short period of time. And that kid worked relentlessly to become an above average minor league third baseman. Now, to be an above average minor league third baseman doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be an above average major league third baseman or even an average major league third baseman. It just means that you've taken strides to work towards being a major league defensively capable third baseman. And he had taken every stride imaginable with both his footwork, his lateral motion, his ability to plant and throw, which was another big issue that he had. And he did it because he's a hard worker who has accepted data as a tool to continue to get better at his pursuits. So when you're talking about him moving to second base, I believe that he will absolutely maximize all of those talents and all of the coaching that he'll receive to be as good of a second baseman as he is capable of being, just as he was getting towards at third base. The the question becomes, is that really the smartest move for him, in my opinion? And I don't believe it is. You know, uh, what I was trying to say on pad the other night when I said that I wanted him to get some reps at, at short, I wanted this spring this spring, to be a testing ground for him. You know, you have Paul DeYoung, who was a catcher that moved to third base, that moved to shortstop, that made a major league debut at second base, although he never played there. And by all accounts, is a gold glove nomination caliber, whatever that means, shortstop. So... There are so many positive things for Nolan Gorman to not go to second base just yet. I like the idea of using this spring as a launching pad for whatever he feels most comfortable with. And if that ends up being third base, then it's third base and you figure it out a couple years from now or later on this year or next year or whenever. And I know Cardinal fans like, Look, I don't think there's no way Nolan Arenado opts out either of these years. I don't think there's any way that he doesn't fall in love with the city or Cardinal Baseball uh, or the clubhouse or the front office or the coaching staff. I think that Arenado and the Cardinals are a match made in baseball heaven. It's a type of match that you dream about. But keep in mind that he was saying the same things about his time with the Rockies when he signed with the Rockies as he sang about the Cardinals. You know, he could be one... 
career year away from saying, all right, I'm just going to opt out and I'm going to, I have every intent of resetting with the Cardinals. I'm just going to get a pay raise. And then the Dodgers throw a billion and a half dollars at him. And all of a sudden he's wearing Dodger blue. So yeah, anything could happen. I, I would have loved for this spring and this season to be like a testing ground for, for Nolan Gorman, just to see what he's capable of everywhere else. Um, while he adjusts, uh, uh, to, whatever approach changes he made because that's the other aspect of this. You're not talking about a kid who is a, like a professional hitter. You're talking about a kid who has a huge hole in his swing, who strikes out quite a bit. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's worked hard to, to change his approach, but he hasn't done it in competitive baseball. There's just a lot going on there to go along with the position change. Now he's up to it. He's a smart kid. He's a dedicated kid. He's a hard worker. I'm not trying to take that away from him. I'm just, I think asking him to make the change immediately. And although I don't think it's the Cardinals making, asking him to do it. I think he's taking the reins of it. And also, if yeah, you're that's me Edmund, what it sounded like to me. Yeah. And if you're telling me Edmund, you gotta be thinking, Whoa, dude, hold on a second. I'm not that bad over there. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, uh, I just I think it's I think it is still just a wee bit early to have this kid like learn a completely new position and a completely new set of responsibilities uh, that when when there's still so much about who he is as a hitter up in the air and probably still so much about who he is as a fielder up in the air, although everything trended in the positive direction. So uh, I hope that answers the question about him defensively. And as far as a slash line goes, you know, I, I guess it just depends on the varying levels of success he has. If he is what Matt Carpenter was as a starter over there, uh, then you're going to need a pretty substantial offensive inc- you know, I- I increase. You're going to need the offense to offset that. But you're going I also, to need to be what Matt Carpenter was as a starter on offense as well, right? jackpot exactly that's it except for instead of with the on-base skill because i don't believe nolan gorman has that he's going to need to supplement that with power so i so yes exactly he's going to need to provide the offense now i don't without thinking about matt carpenter's time at second which i try not to do uh i I don't know how the cardinals employed the shift and I, i i don't believe that they employed it as strongly with carpenter as they might be willing to employ it with Gorman. And also Gorman is way more athletic than Matt Carpenter is not taking away anything from Matt Carpenter's athleticism, but the footwork is better and his lateral movement is better. And he's just quicker than Matt Carpenter. You know, one thing Matt Carpenter does not have is quickness. It just, it, that's not him. Uh, yeah. You know, major league quickness. Cause again, he's quicker than you are. He's quicker than I am. Uh, but uh, he just, you know, that's just not part of his game. So, there's reason to expect that he's going to at least be a little bit better than Matt Carpenter there with a little bit of dedication, his level of dedication, his level of commitment to the position. But it's not, uh, you know, for every expectation you have of him at second base, the bat has to go along because he's never going to be good enough over there that he can't, he's not, he can't not hit. And I know, I know that doesn't answer the slash line question. I know it doesn't answer the (laughs) WRC plus question. Uh, you know, if, if I have to, I think whoever that one guy was that said 110 is dead on, I think that, uh, for a WRC plus, like, you know, you wouldn't want anything less than 110 probably, although to have league average probably is, is fine depending on how good he is over there. 
depending on what the lineup is producing, um, I think that's yeah. another and, big key. And league list. average, if you're league average and you're playing second base, you're a little better than the league average second baseman probably. So, so I could see that being the case as well. I love that. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what we looked at with Colton Wong the last few years, right? That, you know, yeah. he was a league average. He wasn't quite a league average hitter, but he was better than a league average second baseman hitting. And he was also the best defensive second baseman in the league. Um, all right. Um, so the last question of the night uh, comes to us from John LaRue, our friend John LaRue over at uh, Viva Alberto's. Um, this is more of a prospects after darky type question instead of a baseball question. So is a Manhattan the best or most or most cliched old guy beverage? And before you can answer, I'm going to make the joke that uh, maybe the old fashioned would be the best old guy uh-huh. beverage. But OK, go ahead. Uh, now that I'm done being a teacher slash dad. <laughs> I, uh, I'm with you. The, the, it's funny. Whenever I think of Manhattans, I think of old fashions almost immediately. But to me, the most old man drink is is just a Jack and Coke, right? Or a Beam and Coke. Like that's that's the most old man drink. Just get me booze and add or seven seven. Like just get me booze and put some other drink in there. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I don't know my my grandpa. My grandpa was a big Manhattan guy, so I, I think maybe I have to. I agree with John here. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, so, plan moving forward. I know that uh, Dirty for Thirty Five this year. You talked Friday night with musical uh, musical guys that it's going to look a little different from you if it happens. So it may not even happen this year. Um, I know fans are going to want to hear about that. So I wanted to put that out there before you had to break the news to them there. Um, but something you and I had talked about doing was maybe more of an auditory version of it or something dealing with the prospects um, monthly or bi-monthly or something, depending on how the minor league season looks this year. Um, so, uh ideally what are you looking at this year have you kind of come up with that yet of what you want to do with uh with prospect rankings and prospects just in general in 2021 i think the next two weeks are very important important for me and what will end up happening with my enthusiasm level uh as spring training games get going my hope is that it catapults me into a desire to continue to do these things. Uh, right now, I don't really have that. I, I'm absent of that. Uh, I really, and I've also been working a lot over the last three weeks. And I, it's just like, I, I just, I'm not really interested in participating in any of it, really. So, like, I, that's where I'm at. And coming off of last year's minor league season, which didn't exist, it's hard to, it's just, it's hard to even do anything. Like, I, I told, Alan and, and Daniel, like if I do it dirty 35, I do it a little bit differently. But like, even then, since I, since I said it aloud to them and I've thought about it a little bit this weekend, like I'm not really interested in doing that. I do know that I love the idea of doing some type of podcast version with you. That gets me really excited. Um, but it's, it's like, it just seems like a hack kind of thing to do to try to put together a list uh, specifically for the Dirty 35, when so many of these guys have nothing to evaluate for 365 days. 
you know, it just seems yeah. like yeah. It, it's, it seems like pandering and I, I don't want to do that. That's just, you know, I do enough pandering everywhere else. I don't need to do it there. <laughs> All right. So, well, um, since Kyle is unsure of exactly what he wants to do, but he does seem to be excited to maybe podcast it out a little bit. Um, here's kind of, uh, just what I had brainstormed and this is news to <laughs> Kyle. So, um, uh, just in my head, I was thinking, you know, once the minor league season gets going, even if it is, I, I have no idea timetable wise, but even if it's every two weeks or every three weeks or every four weeks, even just talking about maybe what he's seen at the minor league level in his four games a night of viewing on TV slash computer slash laptop slash phone slash however else you watch this four games a night because I can't even watch one half the time with two kids running around. Um, but just to, just to say, Hey, what have you seen in the last month that stood out to you? That that's kind of like where, where I think I'd like to start this at least. Um, if we get closer to draft day and you have had time to dig into the draft, I really, really loved our draft issue of, whatever podcast that was last year. Um, that was, I don't know. It was like a one-off draft podcast that wasn't really under any label, but that, that was one of the most fun nights I feel like I had last year in the baseball season. And so I'd really like to do that again, uh, as well. I, I loved it. Yeah. I, you know, uh, the one positive I think that came out of not having minor league baseball for me last year is it gave me a chance to dig into the draft. Like I've never, dug into the draft before um my, my hope again again i i have an all-time low and my enthusiasm is at an all-time low for everything right now uh, and my hope is that once i get to we get to, to see some of the kids on the field playing baseball for the first time since spring last year it'll reignite me and then you know memphis starts on time and i can start watching memphis games in you know less than two months and then all of these things like re-engage uh, that, that desire that I have. And, and we can keep moving forward and keep moving forward and produce content and get back to gifting things or jiffing things if you like peanut butter better. And <laughs> I, I, like, that's, that's what I'm hopeful for. But I, I, until, like, until we start to see it, until I, until I start to see it, until uh, you know, it'll be something like a Griffin Roberts slider to strike out J.J. Bladé. And I'll lose my mind, and that'll probably be the catalyst <laughs> for me. But uh, it, until then, like, it, it's just, what do you even do? All right, so all, here's I'm the plan of here's the plan of action. Then uh, tomorrow, like I said on Twitter, you call in sick so you can watch mm-hmm. the back-to-back Kumar Rocker and Jack Leiter starts for Vanderbilt, and then you're excited for the season. I, you know, I, I, it's funny. I had actually called my boss right before you had done that. And I, I am off tomorrow. Uh, I am, oh, there I'm, you go. I am long overdue for a long weekend and I'm going to sleep in and I'm going to try to watch both of those games and hopefully do a little gifting in the process. But again, I'm, I'm right. trying to do everything. I'm trying to do everything I can to get myself back in the spirit. <laughs> All right, well, here's looking to a rejuvenated Kyle Reese. Uh, you can find him, uh, even though he's saying that you shouldn't, at K-Y-L-E-R-416 on Twitter. That way, when he is jiffing um, Vanderbilt yeah. starters tomorrow, you can uh, see what he has to say about Kumar Rocker and Jack Leiter. Um, thank you guys for listening. If you made it through that hour and a half of um, me just peppering random questions at Kyle. 
Um, Kyle, thank you for joining me. I love talking baseball with you. Yeah, you're. The, I really appreciate it, Ben. You're the best man, and keep these up. These have all been great. All right, thank you. I appreciate that too. Um, for everybody at Birds on the Black, I hope everybody has a wonderful time until I get to talk to you again. Bye.